Today's episode is brought to you by Bill Cardi's We Sailed on the Lake, a collection of poems published by Bunny Press Phonograph Editions. It is a follow-up to Cardi's debut, Huge Cloudy, which was long-listed for the Believer Book Award. Matthew Rohr has said of his poems, Cardi is at home with the satisfying little facts of nature, the frustrations of politics and its annoying little sidekick, the media, as well as human introspection and what can only be described as magic. Alternating longer, occasionally narrative poems with short lyrics, We Sailed on the Lake finds unexpected affinities within urban and natural environments alike. As one poem states, to cross the lake, you've got to make each step pertain to water. And these poems explore relationality in many forms, moving from gentrifying cities to coastal beaches, from the sculptures of antiquity to YouTube searches, operating as a catalog of our passing days, those of which light is the measure. We Sailed on the Lake is out May 9th and available for pre-order now. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sarah Herkenrother's The Night Flowers, which Hilary Davidson calls hypnotic, heart-wrenching, and harrowing. Following librarian Laura McDonald and veteran detective Jean Martinez, as they remain determined, no matter the cost, to uncover the truth behind three cold case murders. Herkenroder's debut novel unfolds with pulse-pounding precision, says Katie Hayes. Herkenroder has crafted a truly original narrative that unfolds with a shocking array of twists and turns against the backdrop of the Gila National Forest. Every voice in the chorus that makes up this novel sings a siren song of suspense. You won't be able to resist. I devoured it. The Night Flowers is out May 2nd from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm beyond excited to share this conversation, this conversation with Christina Sharp. And I could go on and on talking about the many reasons why. But because I do this very thing within the interview itself, talking about the ways Christina's work has deeply influenced the conversations on Between the Covers over the last several years, I will keep this intro brief. But I will say that if you haven't heard of Christina Sharp before today, you certainly will going forward. Since we talked, she's been profiled in the New York Times Magazine by Jenna Wortham. And the title of this feature is not an overstatement. She really is the woman shaping a generation of black thought. Her latest book is many things. It engages with many things, from memorials to memory to memoir, from painting to photography to poetry, from the violence of reasonableness to the beauty of abolition. And I want to also say that the last three episodes, with Sharif Shanahan, Gugi Watiango, and now Christina Sharp, you might reasonably think that they have occurred consecutively by design, but really they are an accidental triptych, uh, a happenstance juxtaposition that I think nevertheless is a very meaningful one, where the three, by chance, find themselves not only next to each other, but in conversation, I think, with each other. The first with Sharif about intersections between 
Arabness and blackness in both North Africa and North America. The second with Gugi Watiango about how the geopolitical situation for post-colonial Africa is related deeply to the status of African languages on the continent and how securing a base of power for Africa, securing its resources for its people, begins with securing African languages. In today's conversation with Christina Sharp, which looks at black life in the African diaspora and how to sound an ordinary note when the totalizing climate is one of anti-blackness. For the bonus audio archive, Christina contributes many things, seven readings, in fact, readings from Dion Brand's The Blue Clerk, readings of the poetry of Victoria Aduque Bully, and readings from Kinesia Lubrin's forthcoming 2024 book, Code Noir. These join an immense archive of readings, from everyone from Dion Brand herself, to Nikki Finney, to John Keane, to Douglas Kearney, from Lely Long Soldier to Viet Thanh Nguyen to Teju Cole. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter gets the resource-rich email with each episode, pointing you both to the things that I discovered while preparing, videos, essays, books, more, and what to potentially explore after listening. Then there are a ton of other things, from rare collectibles from past guests to the Tin House Early Readership Program, where you receive 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Christina Sharp about the extraordinary Ordinary Notes. stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. Today's guest, writer and scholar Christina Sharp, has a BA from the University of Pennsylvania in English and Africana Studies, and a doctorate in English Language and Literature from Cornell University. She has taught at Hobart and William Smith College, and for nearly 20 years at Tufts, where for part of her tenure, she was director of the American Studies program, teaching courses in the English department, including black feminist theories, queer diasporas, and race and the census. Since 2018, 
She has been at York University in Toronto, where she is the Canada Research Chair in Black Studies. Her essays have appeared in many books, including Reconstructions, Architecture and Blackness in America, and Grief and Grievance, Art and Mourning in America. And many of her essays are parts of exhibitions or books engaging with visual artists from painter Jennifer Packer's The Eye Is Not Satisfied With Seeing to Perceptual Drift, Black Art, and an Ethics of Looking. And she recently wrote the incredibly insightful and extensive introduction to Nomenclature, New and Collected Poems by Dion Brandt. Christina Sharp's first book, Monstrous Intimacies, Making Post-Slavery Subjects, also engages with both the textual and the visual, a cross-disciplinary project using history, literature, performance studies, art history, and film as critical lenses, with Sharp, in Sarah Servanak's words, quote, illuminating the complex entanglements of desire and horror at the heart of black and white subjectification after slavery. But it is with Sharp's second, now iconic book, In the Wake, on blackness and being, that her work really came to the fore, prompting New York Times book critic Pearl Sagal to declare the discovery of Sharp's work her most valuable discovery that year. For Harper's Bazaar this year, to publish an article tracing the incredible influence of this book called Everything Comes Back to Christina Sharp's In the Wake, to prompt Simone Lee in New York Magazine to likewise comment on just how many contemporary artists and scholars have been changed by In the Wake. Slidea Hartman says of the book, Christina Sharp brings everything she has to bear on her consideration of the violation and commodification of black life and the aesthetic responses to this ongoing state of emergency. Through her curatorial practice, Sharp marshals the collective intellectual heft and aesthetic inheritance of the African diaspora to show us the world as it appears from her distinctive line of sight, a searing and brilliant work. And Madeleine Tien for The Guardian adds, in the wake speaks in so many multiple ways, poetry, memory, theory, images, and does so in language that is never still. It is in part about keeping watch, not unseeing the violence that has become normative, being in the hold, holding on, and still living. It is thus with great pleasure and much anticipation for me to be talking to Christina today about her latest book, Out from FSG in the U.S., Knopf in Canada, and Daunt Books in the U.K., Ordinary Notes, with starred reviews from both Publishers Weekly and Kirkus. Writer Alexander Chi says, Ordinary Notes is like an intellectual ice climb. You move along a careful series of handholds to cross a terrain that might otherwise seem impassable. And afterward, you're amazed at the passage, at once an act of careful attention and a juxtaposition of observations and questions. The result is a powerful vision of American life, drawn from the black intellectual history and aesthetics that Sharp has cultivated 
as the means to her own liberation so that she might offer it to others. And poet, writer, and translator John Keane adds, Among the many achievements here, these exemplary notes, which include a stirring recounting of the author's intellectual and aesthetic formation and a tribute to motherly and familial love in the face of this country's and world's relentless brutalities, show how one might combine memoir, memorial, literary criticism, political and cultural critique, and theoretical accounting in order to imagine a new model, suffused with grace, subtlety, rigor, and care for how to read and think with and against, which is to say, to produce true and lasting knowledge. Welcome to Between the Covers, Christina Sharp. Thank you so much, David, for that generous introduction, and it's such a pleasure to be with you here today. So thinking of Keene's notion of creating new models to produce true and lasting knowledge, I think this echoes one of the meanings of the word note, notation, and annotation of creating an archive, of sustaining an archive. And before we begin, I just... I wanted to speak into the ways your work has shaped this show and its archive long before today. I probably won't get the chronology right, but I read in the wake as part of my preparation for my conversation with Ross Gay, as he talks about in his acknowledgments to his book, Beholding, how crucial your book was to him writing his book. And I was reading in the wake in anticipation of talking to him when I was preparing to talk to Natalie Diaz, which was happening before talking to Roske, which became a two-part, nearly five-hour conversation that ended up being deeply informed by my reading of you and also discovering by Natalie's own independent reading of your work. And only through reading it could I have had the more recent conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen where your scholarship, I think, became a subtext for what we explore around Asian American studies and Asian American identity. It shaped my more recent of two conversations with Solma Sharif, as did your essay, Lose Your Kin. Also, of course, the conversation with Dion Brand, um, the guidance of your introduction to her life as a poet. Uh, and then with Lydia Yuknovich, when she came on Crafting with Ursula to talk about Le Guin's essay, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, where Lydia and I read in a call and response from your incredible piece, What Could a Vessel Be?, which also exists in relation to Le Guin's carrier bag theory. And then very recently, your notion of shared risk, of distributive risk, became a frame when I was talking to both Monica Yoon and Sharif Shanahan about the ways their poetries engage with blackness and anti-blackness in their communities. I'm understating the influence, but I wanted to begin today by naming it and noting it and also saying thank you, Christina Sharp. Thank you so much, David. I've listened to you between the covers for quite some time. And so my surprise when I listened to that Roth Gay um, yeah, to listen to all of the people, almost all of the shows that, you, that you've that you mentioned. Um, I am kind of at a loss for words. Mm -hmm. um, I learned so much from 
your interviews from the incredible amount of work that you do to prepare for them and your kind of deep engagement with all of these work. And it's been uh, a deep honor, pleasure, and surprise to see the way that my work has also engaged these other writers and thinkers whose work has influenced my own and who I often teach and who I certainly have great respect for. Mm. So it's been, can I say, mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> for me too. Um, and, and I have to say that when you and Lydia did that call and response, that was, yeah, it was, you know, coming at the end of that episode, which, you know, does so much work in thinking with Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction. It was, I think, just a, a sort of beautiful movement and arc of that of that episode. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, one significant connotation of the word note in your book, Ordinary Notes, is auditory, is sounding a note, perhaps most notably a scene in Beloved, of how each day begins and ends with the calls of high man and what this does to the atmosphere on the chain gang, how these twice daily calls establish a way to connect and endure and persevere when the facts on the ground haven't yet changed. But I wanted to start not with the ear, but with the eye. As I tried to highlight in the intro, you have a longstanding interest in the visual you're often in an engagement with visual art and artists, with painting, sculpture, photography, and video. And one of your research interests is listed as Black diaspora visual cultures. I watched a short video of you talking about the 1978 film Killer of Sheep by Charles Burnett. And in it, you said that the second time you watched it, you decided to track the children in it. And you noticed how lovingly they are rendered. And you noted how boy and girl are not categories normally afforded to black people. And you talk about how you showed an excerpt to your class to find out if you would teach it. And when a white student of yours said it reminded them of the little rascals, you knew that their eyes weren't ready for it yet. And so you didn't teach it. And you also mentioned in that same video, Tony Cade Bambara, and how she said that the film Daughters of Dust tries to, quote, heal our imperialized eyes. And when I think of this, and I think back to Alexander Chi's blurb about this book being an intellectual ice climb across something that at first seems impassable, it, it feels like you provide an opportunity if we're willing to do the work to be ready to see or to become ready to see. And I would love for you to talk to us about your longstanding interest in the visual, in the eye, or in the regard, and seeing as not something entirely passive and receptive, not something that we just take in, but something that we might prepare ourselves for. David, I love your question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I said to myself, I think I need to reread all of my work and listen to all of my talks to prepare myself um, for this conversation, which I did not get to. Um, but somehow I knew you were going to speak about that Killer of Sheep video, which I even often forget that I did. 
So I think that you could look at a film like Killer of Sheep, or you could look at a film like Daughters of the Dust and engage it as only a kind of spectacle, depending on how one is positioned to see it. And one of the things Julie Dash says about Daughters of the Dust. So I saw Daughters of the Dust when it first came out and I saw it in a theater in Brooklyn in 1992 and it was all black people in the audience. It was packed and the audience was so appreciative and responsive when the food is being cooked, people are exclaiming. And it's just, it was, a, it was the best way that I could have first encountered that film. Then I saw it again um, at the Ritz Theater which I don't even know if it's still called the Ritz um, in Philadelphia. And I saw it with my mother then. And again, the audience was super appreciative of it. And one of the things that Julie Dash says is that she made that film first for black women, then for all black people, and then for everybody else. So she was making, she and Arthur Jaffa, who was the cinematographer, were making a film, I think, to engage all of our senses. And I think a film that in its visual aesthetics, the ways that the, the frame rate is slowed down does its own kind of reparative work for a kind of cinema of our assault and violation. And so I think that the way that Dash talked about the film, the aesthetics of the film, the people who worked on the film, including you know, sets by Carrie J. Marshall and James Marshall and, and other people, does so much work to prepare us to enter the scenes. But I remember at the time, a number of white feminists writing about the film in national publications and saying things like, you know, it looked unrealistic. Why are they wearing like Laura Ashley clothing, um, et cetera. And so it was really clear that there was a particular sort of EYE slash I, subject I, who was being hailed by the film. And I think Toni K. Bambara is right when she says that Dash intends to heal our imperialized eyes. Dash and Burnett were part of the LA school sometimes called the LA Rebellion, filmmakers. And I think that Killer of Sheep does a similar kind of work. I mean, you said that I, I have written about the ways in which Black children are often denied the status of child, of boy or girl. So that's one of the things I so love about that film is even though it begins with this kind of harsh moment of a father chastising the son for not defending his little brother. And it's sort of that child that's on the cusp of adulthood. So much of the film, when the children are involved, looks at the children as children and they're allowed to be children, you know, living in the still present aftermath of the Watts Rebellion and that kind of devastated landscape. But they're allowed to play and laugh and I love the little girl, Angie, who's got the, the rubber dog mask on. I mean, that is like, it just, it just, like I feel my heart <laughs> when, um, when I watch that film. And, you know, it's, it's just these complete moments of, of tenderness and play. And then also not so much tenderness, but like I see my own moments of my own childhood in that film in a way that I think I haven't often. Well, to stay with your childhood for a minute, 
this book is many things, and one of them is memoir. And I think one way you could characterize the book is a love letter to your mother. And you've talked about how you didn't have a black teacher until you were in university, that you weren't being taught the literature and philosophy and history of black life, except at home, where this was happening very consciously by your mother, her curating and nourishing in an engagement with black thought and black art and black stories and putting them before you and around you. I was thinking it would be good to hear you speak a little into how she shaped your home life in this regard and in the first two decades of your life and how that regard for you in this way reverberates into ordinary notes. Yeah, I mean, as you were asking the question, you know, certain questions can make you see your own work differently or make a really clear connection to something. So as you were saying that in the sort of beginning by talking about my own schooling and how I had no black teacher until I got to university. Um, and then I had many and I took classes with people over and over again. It made me think of, I think it's note 52, which is called ma'am. It's a kind of reading of moments in Beloved with Setha, but it's about how those captive Africans enslaved in the new world offered a different kind of education than the white man called school teacher. And so in that moment, as you were asking the question, I thought, oh yeah, it's note 52 <sighs> that, you know, I didn't have any black teachers except my mother. And she offered me the counter imagining to those white school teachers who, for example, didn't know who Sojourner Truth was, but I knew who Sojourner Truth was. And so I had to do a kind of educating work in my elementary and junior high school of teachers who were ignorant to their own history, mm. meaning that, <laughs> you know, Black history is U.S. history. And so, yeah, my mother... Um, who had only a, a high school education. Her mother had a seventh grade education, loved reading, loved books, loved poetry, wrote, sang, and completely infused my childhood with reading. My mother sold Doncaster clothing at some point and the little cardstock that you would use to give to potential clients, the back was blank and my mother would make little crossword puzzles so like she taught me to read when I was three years old. I don't remember a life without reading. Mm. I don't remember a life in which words were not central to it. And my mother had a really beautiful reading voice. And at a certain point began to do, my mother recorded books for the blind and dyslexic. So she recorded textbooks. And after she died, the women sent me some of those recordings so that I would have, so that I would have uh, her voice on cassette. Wow. Um, yeah, I had an extensive vocabulary at a very young age, probably more extensive than it is now, <laughs> because <laughs> my mother would also make up, I don't know what those little things are called, they are acrostics or something where you fill in the letters. So, mm. so yeah, and, and of course, that kind of love of reading, that uh, commitment to, to language, the love of re even reading aloud, which I do in all my classes, is, is directly because of my mother's influence and care and her own 
I don't know, ways of trying to make a whole self in the midst of deep stress and anti-Blackness. Well, in, in a loophole of retreat event at the Guggenheim Museum three years ago, you read a piece largely about your mother, which begins with the lines, beauty is a method. And it's a line that I've never stopped thinking about and which reappears in ordinary notes as the line, I've been thinking about what beauty as a method might mean or do. And I think of your curation of images of beautiful skies and flowers on Twitter. I think of your photo montage as part of the book, Joy Has a Sound, Black Sonic Visions from the Third Thing Press, which are pictures from travel you did in Trinidad and Tobago, Cartagena and Porto, of wrecked buildings that have been reclaimed by greenery, of a sugar mill that had the architecture of slavery but has since joined with a tree. And you caption these photos with lines like, I need quiet, or what Kevin Kwashi calls the sovereignty of the interior. But mostly when I think of beauty as a method, I think of your mother, and I wondered if you could speak a little more about beauty as a method and what it might mean or do as you wonder in ordinary notes. Mm -hmm. What that means for you, if it is connected to your mother, as I'm particularly interested in it because it also changes things from something passive and observed like, oh, that's beautiful, to something that one might have to actively or even painstakingly manifest. Yeah, again, that's great. I like that, that one might have to actively or even painstakingly manifest. I think that's absolutely right. I think that sort of encapsulates it. Yeah, I mean, it does have everything to do with my mother and certain conditions under which I grew up where you couldn't do anything about the kind of big things for lack of money, but you could, as I say, cut some branches of mock orange and bring them in the house, even though you were allergic to them, (laughs) because Mm. it was to bring some sense of beauty into, into a space. I always appreciated my mother's attention to beauty. You know, we would go to the farmer's market. We would always bring home flowers if it wasn't in the spring or summer when we could bring in our own flowers. But I don't think it was really until I was working on that piece for Simone Lee's Guggenheim show when she won the Hugo Boss Prize that I really realized that it was a method. It was a praxis. Um, I think even when I was writing in the wake in the very first pages, it hadn't quite hit me at the time how much of a praxis it was, but certainly it was that she had a kind of commitment to it that she also inculcated in each of us. And I do think that we think about a book like Cynthia Hartman's Wayward Lives in which she traces the ways that those young Black women and girls had a commitment to living free, which involved a commitment to making a beautiful life in the midst of the harshest conditions. You really do begin to encounter beauty, not as something that is passively received, but something that is actively made. Then I always think of a a novel that I used to teach all the time, 
um, not by a black writer, but a Polish writer, Polish slash Russian writer because the borders change, but Andrzej Jezierska, Salome of the Tenements, in which she talks about the democracy of beauty and in which you know her whole life is dedicated to living in beauty and making beauty accessible to everyone, no matter what one's um, financial situation is, right? So she, you know, that's why it's the democracy of beauty that why should she have to live in a kind of hideous tenement? Doesn't she also have an eye for beauty? Doesn't she also deserve to live a kind of beautiful life? And so I think beauty really is that thing that we must have some kind of active relation to. It's related to imagination. It's related to kind of producing the kind of worlds that we might actually want to live in with other people. Well, in the in the Harper Bazaar article, everything comes back to Christina Sharp's In the Wake. I was particularly taken by how Ben Lerner teaches your work, which feels in the spirit of how you decide whether and when to teach Killer of Sheep. He says he opens his semester with the class reading in the wake, using it not just as a work of art or not just as a piece of criticism in and of itself, but in his words as a threshold. Quote, we have to acknowledge that the class takes place in an emergency. Everything we read after in the wake from Walt Whitman to Claudia Rankine, we test against and think of it alongside Sharp's idea of the wake and the different ways, like it or not, we are all operating inside the afterlife of slavery. It does something to the class. So when I think of this curation of sight, it isn't surprising to me that you're interested in memorials and memorialization as it involves both the eye and the mind's eye. It involves memory and imagination and vision or envisioning, decisions about what to show and when to show it and how to frame it. When Dion Brand was on the show, for the bonus audio, she did a reading of several of the notes from Ordinary Notes when it was still a forthcoming book. So to bring her voice into the space, I'm going to play one of the notes that she chose, read by her, that occurs early and engages with this question of curating memory and sight. Note three. The past, or more accurately, pastness, Michel Rolf Troyot tells us, is a position. Several years ago, when we were in Erlangen, Germany, R and I went to the Nazi Documentation Center and Nazi Party rally grounds in Nuremberg. By the time we left, after watching the films and viewing the installations and the displays of photographs, books, racist games and more, we were convinced that depending on where one stood, this memorialization would actually attract people to Nazism. The objects function as memorabilia, 
a memorialization not of the wounded, but of the perpetrator. We observed the other people at the center. Some of their faces were filled with admiration for the brutalities of white nationhood and the heraldic call of white supremacy. They were lit with an emotion that was neither horror at the perpetrators nor sympathy for the victims. The visual and sonic repetitions in the documentation center may now be, or may have always been, incapable of doing the work of never again that in their installation they were intended to do. We saw in them not the condemnation of the Nazis, but their glorification. These displays enter a present in which, quote, in no way can we identify the past as past, unquote. The questions that you raise early in Ordinary Notes that Dion reads here, they're not particular to this memorial. I mean, this debate, it exists in the Jewish community. It exists in, in the black community. And you unpack it in a variety of ways. And many of them early as we read through the book. You quote Brian Stevenson saying to Henry Louis Gates Jr. that to change the narrative around lynching, we must do better at showing how brutal it was. And you talk about Claudia Rankin's presentation at the Bernard Center for Research on Women and her playing of one of the situation videos that she makes with her filmmaker husband, which is assembled footage of murders and beatings of black people in the United States. And you talk about how Rankin, in doing this in front of an audience, insists on an us and a we who needed to watch and sit in this death and violence that's undifferentiated. She insists on an undifferentiated we, something that was unwelcome and stunned many people in the room. And, and you include a letter from black academics at a different event in Montreal that, um, where she shows a video and their feelings that, quote, spliced together as a long black death made no new revelations. This question is something you explore in the wake as well, looking at the spectacle of slavery's brutality in, in the movie 12 Years a Slave versus, as you've already described, the ways Daughters of the Dust engages with it. And it makes me think of your quote of Frank Wilderson early in Ordinary Notes before this section, where he says, shared experiences in the realm of the social do not necessarily index shared positions in the realm of the structural. Or your words, visuality is not simply looking. It is a regime of seeing and being and any so-called neutral position is a position of power that refuses to recognize itself as such. So hoping you would talk to us about what comes up when you listen to note three, why you want to position these questions raised in Germany and in America early in the book so that we enter these spaces with you in this way. 
and to what end? What a, again, beautiful question because you begin with Ben Lerner, right? <laughs> and so are these the threshold questions? I, I guess in some sense they are, right? Yeah. Um, but hearing hearing that note again, read by Dion, first I wanna say is it makes me not wanna read my own note myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's read, it's read so, so beautifully. It is. Um, and so I really hear it again in a different in a different way. I'm always interested in the we, what we's are being summoned, what we's are being imagined. I, I, I do use the pronoun we. I try to be clear that I'm 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 usually I'm speaking to and of black people and not just black people in the US or North America, differentiated black people, but I'm trying to speak into the, the ways that, as I've said before, no matter where we are or where we're positioned, we are subject to similar kinds of ongoing violences. And so that's a kind of we that I'm, that I'm working with, but it's not a we that in, it's not, I think the we of the situation film. It's not a we that doesn't account for those different registers of how the afterlife of slavery is lived and encountered, whether from a position of power or from a position of, of, of both oppression and structural kinds of, and, and particular kinds of structural violence. Maybe you could ask me another part of the question again. Yeah. The debate around what we achieve from showing more or what belief yeah. is behind showing more versus other ways of showing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this fear, this fear that we've made a museum for the, for the Nazis rather than, yeah. you know, and I didn't expect to experience that. Um, and again, I guess, you know, it's, it's not the Holocaust museum. It is, the documentation center it's the nazi documentation center mm -hmm. nonetheless i found it as i say reproducing that kind of i don't know allure a kind of allure of the nazi and i suppose that is a deep risk that one runs when one is trying to document the brutality at all the material levels aesthetically and otherwise, right? So I suppose that is the risk that one runs, but to have experienced it, and this was what, 2015, 2016? I was really taken aback. It's not at all what I expected to feel as I walked through, um, to feel that others were feeling <laughs> as I walked through, because that's not what I was feeling. Um, and then in terms of, you know, it's not that I don't think or I can say it positively, I do think the National Memorial for Peace and Justice should exist. I do think the legacy museum from slavery to mass incarceration should exist. I think though, and it's clear in terms of the kinds of responses, the initial responses of people who went to both spaces that, you know, there were many white people who went to those spaces who thought, or who didn't go to the space, but had something to say about it, about like, you know, you know, that's in the past, you know, we should forget this, or who made angry. There were others, of course, who felt 
deep sadness, remorse, guilt, whatever range of feelings, you know, a desire to learn more. And then for many Black people, it was a, you know, a, a different kind of encounter, um, sometimes with the names of relatives, um, sometimes with a history that had been repressed or forgotten or unspoken, um, sometimes just an encounter with uh, a history that is still ongoing in terms of the numbers of Black people who we have experienced being brutally murdered um, and their murders circulating widely and still circulating. I mean, I suppose there's the, the, the even more so than the circulation of those lynching postcards, which, you know, circulated, of course, openly in U.S. mail until I think it was made illegal in 1942. So then circulated, I guess, in an envelope. Mm -hmm. But, you know, these videos circulate again and again and again. And there's really no stopping their circulation. You know, the murders of multitudes of people. And so I, I, I am bewildered by the idea by the holding on to the idea that if we show it enough, something will change. Because I think that we can say across all experiences in which atrocity is attended to by, as I write, the materialization of, of more atrocity, that it doesn't do the work that we imagine that it's doing that encounter with brutality may produce more of that same brutality as opposed to an aversion to that brutality, as opposed to a kind of dedication to ending that brutality. It might land in the space, which is I think the space we are living now, in which it produces a commitment on the part of those people who name black people among others as not human a desire to engage in that kind of what Cornelius Edie calls brutal imagination. Thinking of, of these questions of what to remember or how to remember or how to present or represent, and thinking also of you, you quoting Kevin Kwashi about the sovereignty of the interior, uh, we have a question from you from Madeline Tian. Hi, Christina, it's Maddie. It's really a joy and an honor to step into this conversation. Uh, Christina, I felt a real kinship with the way Ordinary Notes respects opacity and untranslatability and how it places seeing and noting and notation as a practice, a kind of making and unmaking. I wondered if you could speak about the methods of the scholar and the methods of the writer working towards a kind of recovery of sight and of regard. I would love to hear you speak about your reframing of the act of scholarship itself and scholarly investigation. There's a line in note 163 that I love. When you reflect on the parts of your mother's life, you can't know. And this part of the note reads, I have tried to enter with grace and imagine with tenderness, or I have left them alone. Thank you, Christina, and love to you. Thank you so much, Maddie. <laughs> it's lovely to hear your voice. Thank you, um, and thank you for the question. Well, I, I feel like 
I suppose I have many ways to try to answer that. It's a beautiful question. I would expect nothing else from Maddie. And so thinking about reframing, maybe I want to start at the end, which is the, the question about what I do not know I have tried to render with care and tenderness. I thought a lot about wanting to use those photographs of my mother and then my mother and, and then my grandmother and how I would try to read them. And then in the midst of writing, uh, you know, I took a break one evening and I got this email and the email was from a woman who as soon as I saw her name, I knew exactly who she was, even though we had never met because her maiden name was Wheatley um, and my brother's middle name was Wheatley, Stephen Wheatley Sharp. Um, so yes, Phyllis Wheatley, but also <laughs> uh, my mother's friend. And I was kind of stunned and she, you know, wrote me these letters, which I emails, which I've reproduced in the book with her uh, permission. And I just realized it opened up this life I knew nothing about. And that had been closed to me. And closed to me because I think things changed so much between the time my brother was 11 years older than me, it changed so much between the time of his birth and childhood and my own changed in terms of my parents' relationship, changed in terms of um, other kinds of conditions, and changed in terms of, you know, growing up, my mother had no, there were no visitors. Um, like my father's family would come sometimes, but we, and, you know, I would have friends come over once in a while, but my mother had no visitors. I didn't really meet anyone who my mother called a friend until after my father, my father died. And so it just sort of opened up this, this kind of aperture that I also thought there were many things my mother talked to me about, many of which I do not reproduce in the book, some of which I do. And I thought it, it, it opened up any more, any number of questions, as well as giving me some other insight on my mother's interior life. And that I didn't think as her daughter, I needed necessarily to either enter or to write on the page perhaps different than if I encountered this person as a subject of study, um, as a quote unquote scholar, who I might have felt the need to do another kind of probing work to put on the page. Though there are many examples, I think, of people who do that kind of scholarly work and still allow people their own non-exposed interiority, if I'm making sense, mm -hmm. right? Because I think I think Hartman does it in Wayward Lives. I think I try to do it when I redact people's names. Um, I think I try to do it in the note tender. So I hope I've answered the question about a kind of reframing. And I think what I wanted the notes to do was to kind of build and accumulate and thereby make an argument without my having to work an argument through in the ways that I have been taught to as an academic. And so part of that, I think, is to allow for space to do its own kind of work. Well, let me extend Maddie's question about opaqueness and 
untranslatability or even the refusal to translate into, into the things that you don't show or perhaps refuse to show in ordinary notes. I wanted to start with the redactions that you just mentioned that happened throughout the book. And first I'm going to mention another book by the Third Thing Press uh, that you're involved in, um, Quentin Baker's We Pilot the Blood, which is an erasure poem using a Senate document related to a revolt of slaves being transported on a ship called Creole. And at the end of it are meditations by you. But what is interesting is that you are relating not only to Baker's erasures, but also to images by Torquasi Dyson, uh, to Baker's redactions and Dyson's abstract representations. Um, in the section called Black Redactions, of the many sections that you write, you say, Quentin Baker's redactions are black redaction. It is redaction work that allows that which and those whom the state has silenced the possibility of being heard. This is not the blacking out of text that the state declares too sensitive. It is not to conceal information that the state decides is classified. It is to make documents that have a particular kind of uniformity speak something that they were never meant to reveal. And then you choose some of his lines, the lines that he has created by blacking out other words. A long bloody possession. They could not kill the sunrise in me. And I will not be the fulfillment of the object. And then about Dyson's hypershapes, you say, Dyson's shapes are not here to augment the poems. They enact a language of line and curve, shade and grid. They invite us to think about how we are made and unmade through shape and in place. They are vector and foil. Your redactions, too, don't necessarily always have the same purpose or function as we encounter them. S sometimes it feels like you might be protecting someone, sometimes that you might be blacking out the name of a horrible person so as not to repeat it, um, sometimes to erase or withhold a slur. But how do you see the redactions in ordinary notes? Talk to us about making us aware of what's being removed or blacked out. Well, first, I want to go back to thinking about the Quentin Baker and also the uh, Paul Huelvas, Huelva Ceballos. Um, and so it's two poems, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Ceballos is banana and then redacted. And that's a kind of found poem. Um, and then Quentin Baker's We Pilot the Blood, which is the redaction poem, now published as Ballast. And I, I just, I so... Uh, loved both poems and was so really deeply moved to write about both of them and to think about Quentin's um, redactions and also the shapes of the poems, like the ones that look like a barracoon or the ones that looked like, you know, three ships. And to think about 
the shape the redactions took and the kind of work that the form did as well as the the kind of declaration that you know like they will not kill the sunrise in me i found them sort of stunning it moving and can't wait to peach with the with the book so thinking about redaction in my own work it's not consistent so it's not it's not as you say the same kind of redaction every time in one of the early in two of the early letters it's redaction of individuals names and identifying details and so you know not like the state but still a kind of redaction because on one sense those names and details mean a great deal to me but they in another sense mean nothing because those kind of sentiments you know move out i think through black life right that many of us could receive letters like that one being kind of innocuous one in my experience of it not really innocuous at all um so those kind of redactions are you know to do do away with kind of identifying names and information that specify when they don't it doesn't actually require that specification to do the kind of work that I wanted to do the other kind of redaction um i redacted and there's one name that appears in the book that i think in the paper back edition i will redact because i wish i had redacted it mm. it is to kind of spare the repetition of a certain kind of brutality circulating attached to that name both because i want those people to have their life as they lived it outside of that particular brutal thing that was done to them and secondly i think because again it's a kind of brutality that is both very specific and also not specific in the ways in which violence against black people gets reproduced and circulated and reanimated and so redaction is working in those different registers of a kind of 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 not of the non-repetition of particular details that allow it to be a kind of individual experience or an individual you know thinking through their relation to anti-blackness and then um the kind of redaction that allows people who have been grievously harmed a life outside of that grievous harm well i'd i'd love to spend a moment with whether your redaction methodology with text is the same as what you choose to show or not show in images and and if not how they differ Ordinary Notes is full of images of all sorts, family photos, lots of photos of art, of your much-loved and annotated copy of Beloved, of one of your mother's amazing letters to the editor, several of which we get to read in full. Um, the emphasis feels different than In the Wake, which is also full of images, two of which have never left me, one of prisoners sleeping in a cell in Malawi packed together with no space where one body isn't contacting many others and a photo that's partly disturbing to me because it's also very beautiful as a photograph 
And the other photo, which is even more unsettling, is a is a close up of a black girl's face lying on her side in the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake with a piece of tape across her forehead that has the word ship on it. And it's unnerving because of its indeterminacy. Is it a command? Is it a reminder to ship her somewhere for her good or, or not? Um, this is part of a rescue. But even if it is, it evokes her as cargo, as property. And the viewer feel, feels unmoored on how to position themselves to what they're seeing. And you so wonderfully and richly explore that gap in In the Wake between what we know and what we see with these photos and others. But given that Ordinary Notes doesn't have these sort of images, I wondered if anything has shifted for you around your ethos, around what you want to show and why. But either way, talk to us about redaction in relation to images, what you won't show and what you want to curate and show. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think, again, I'll, I'll kind of long answer because there are also images in um, in the wake that are redacted. And the redacted images are of the eyes of those two enslaved young women whose photograph, the daguerreotypes taken by J.T. Zeely at the instruction of Louis Agassiz. And so I decided not to repeat those much repeated photographs of Delia and Drena and to only use a strip of their eyes. And I thought if the Peabody doesn't give me permission to just reproduce their eyes, I won't reproduce any part of the image. I will simply speak to the to the photographs. And so I hoped that in, in the wake with my attention to images and my rereading of the image of the little girl who survived the Haitian earthquake, that I would be kind of enacting a kind of method for how one might read photographs um, and how one might read photographs in the aftermath of disaster, how one might read uh, photographs that produce what most photographs should produce, which is sense of you know, not quite knowing what one is seeing instead of a kind of assumption of knowledge of what one is seeing. I, I don't know that that was always successful. I do think that, you know, I sat with the photograph of the little girl who had the word ship taped to her head for a very long time before I began to try to write about her. I knew that, that she was alive. She might someday encounter my writing I knew that I did not want to reproduce harm. I also knew that even if I didn't write about her, that others would in a way that might reproduce harm. And so I tried to, to balance, you know, should I write and reproduce this image? Should I not? But if I'm going to reproduce it, I want to reproduce it in a way that attends to the image with a kind of regard, a real attention to the person in the image, um, to the person whose photograph um, has been, and I would say in this instance, taken. So I recently had a conversation with Dawood Bey who says, you know, he doesn't talk about taking photographs. He talks about making photographs. I think this photograph was taken. Um, 
I think this, you know, um, John Edgar Mason also talks about what if the black person being photographed actually to the photographer had the right to say no and that no would be taken seriously. I don't think there was any such right there. And so I wanted to really try to attend to that. And I think the same in the photographs in Ordinary Notes. But of course, they're, they're quite different books. You know, you talked about seeing the photograph of the little girl and, uh, you know, the viewer doesn't know how to enter the photograph necessarily. But I think there's, there, there's more than one viewer of the photograph. And I felt like when I encountered that photograph, I first had to, to, to just, I closed my computer because I thought, wow, <laughs> I don't, I, 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 that photograph was too painful and immediately invoked those 500 years of slavery and transatlantic and then trans-Mediterranean passage. And I thought, I have to come back to this at another point. I can't, I can't attend to this now. But I knew that she was alive. And so I don't, I, I really don't, I, I can't. Um, there are people who can write about images of people who have been killed. I, I actually can't do that. And so I wanted to come back to this image because I knew there was more to see there than a child who had been hurt. And I do think that, again, there are, are different viewers who encounter this and who bring to it their, their own understanding of what that word ship might mean. Now to go to the question of ordinary notes and images, mostly they're photographs of mine. Um, there are only a few that, that aren't my photographs. So they're the images from the Legacy Museum and the National Museum for Peace and Justice. There are photographs of my family. There's a photograph of my uncle Carl, who was a railroad porter on the cover of the Pensy magazine from 1954. And then, you know, images of, of sky, etc. And I think that I wasn't attending an ordinary note, at least in terms of reproducing photographs of photographs that hurt. Even though discussion about such photographs does appear in the in the book but I will never reproduce a photograph of a lynching and that's 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 nothing that I'm that I'm going to do I no longer show those photographs when I teach um, I don't think it does from experience I won't say I don't think I know it doesn't do the work that in my showing it I wanted it to do mm. right it kind of it can often re-traumatize black students and do a kind of weird distancing work with non-Black students. And so I decided that I would never reproduce those images again. Well, to stay another minute with Maddie's question and in the aura of this question of opacity and what we curate to show, I want to talk about the part of the book I think about the most and it has to do with an encounter you had with a stranger who spoke to you, a white woman, when you were at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in, in Montgomery, Alabama, which memorializes victims of racial terror lynchings. But first, could, could we hear notes 36 and 37, which would tell us what happened and some of the meaning-making that happens afterwards? Sure. Note 
36, National Memorial for Peace and Justice, December 28, 2018, Montgomery, Alabama. In the section of the memorial that is the graveyard, I am undone, thinking about family secrets and wondering if, worrying that, I might see a familial name on a monolith. I am wondering if, worrying that, I might find someone I know here, some member of my family, someone from the cache of fears and secrets that my family carried. A white woman approaches me tentatively. Excuse me, she says. We are walking in the same direction. She is crying. I don't know at first that she is speaking to me and I can't imagine what she wants. I turn partially and reluctantly toward her. Excuse me, she says again. I just want to say that I'm sorry. And she gestures toward where the monoliths are laid out like coffins. I'm so sorry about all of this. I do not reply. Note 37, New York City, February 8th, 2019. We are a first, a panel of five black people, two of whom are psychoanalysts, assembled for the third iteration of the annual meeting of the American Psychoanalytic Association's series University Forum on Racism in America. In my paper, I relate that encounter with the white woman in the graveyard who apologizes for all of this. In the question and answer period after our talks, several white women in the audience, which is almost entirely white and primarily analysts, ask me if I can say why I didn't reply to her. They ask me if I will tell them what I would have said if I had replied. I give two answers. My first answer is no, I will not answer this question because I think that my talk on the work of memorials in general and on the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in particular has already explicitly done this work. My second answer is that I will step into my role as a teacher and elaborate. I tell the white psychoanalysts that I do not reply to the woman at the memorial because I am at first unsure that she is speaking to me. And really, she isn't. She is speaking into the space and in the direction of a Black person. But second, and more importantly, I do not reply to her because with her apology, she tries to hand me her sorrow and whatever else she is carrying to super add her burden to my own. It is not mine to bear. I have my own sorrows. Listening to Christina Sharp read from Ordinary Notes. So what most sticks with me about this is how you say both no and yes to these white analysts at the same time, letting them know that this is work they should be doing themselves to understand. But also, I think going back to Alexander Chi's notion of the intellectual ice climb, I feel like your book will feel more or less like a climb at various times, depending on who you are as a reader. 
And I suspect there are many people reading the same book who end up having very different journeys through Ordinary Notes. But what I loved about it is, and this is a great example, I think, this pairing of notes that comes early in the book of how if it wasn't obvious to a given reader why you wouldn't acknowledge this woman, and maybe it wasn't entirely satisfying to hear you explain it on the next page, nevertheless, if you work your way through ordinary notes, I think it becomes obvious later on in the act of reading. In, in the act of working through and allowing oneself to be worked upon by the book. To, to return to your mother who curates a black life for you when you were the only black person in an almost all-white Catholic elementary school being called the N-word nearly daily, uh, spit in the face by a white schoolmate in front of your father who says nothing and you're both shamed in the process. In that same section, we see a photo of Horace and Sarah Baker trying to move into a white neighborhood under police protection. And the line by you, quote, there is the violence of the baying crowd and there is the violence of reasonableness, each part necessary to maintain an all-white neighborhood. I wanted to bring up the violence of reasonableness in relation to the woman who approaches you in the museum because mm. I'm thinking I'm thinking about how you include how classmates of yours how classmates of yours as a child you don't say if these classmates themselves were perpetrators of racist aggression toward you but I think we at least imagine that they were complicit in their silence how these classmates now reach out to you 40 years later to tell you that their child is in a doctoral program reading in the wake, um, speaking to you unbidden without any acknowledgement or apology. Another classmate the same week wanting to quote unquote reconnect, perhaps because you're now known and respected. Again, you don't respond to these people, and similarly to the woman in the museum, and yet you include your unsent and redacted response for us, which includes the phrase, so much rehabilitated and reconstructed into that goodness and perpetual innocence that whiteness extends. I don't know if it's a stretch to connect this to the white museum goer, who isn't addressing you, but sort of addressing you as a function or as a representation. Um, but I wondered if you could speak more into the violence of reasonableness for us. Uh, absolutely. Um, again, a kind of we, you know, a, a kind of beautiful and evocative weaving together of moments. I want to say to the beginning, though, that in the aftermath of that spit in my face. Um, by redacted, I do know his name. I probably will never forget his name. Um, it, it wasn't that my father saw it. It's that really what happened after that is really a blank for me. And so I know that afterwards my father was headed to 
his car to go to work? Does he work the three to 11 shift at the post office? And so for me, it's a question of whether or not he saw it or not. And it's a question of if he did see it. So it's in my imagining, I'm trying to work through like, if he saw it, then we were sort of sealed in our mutual shame in relation to it. Mm -hmm. Like that it could be done to me and that he could be witness to it. But I think it's a great question about the kind of violence of reasonableness right? The reasonable white people in the crowd who are, are like Mr. Um, well, now I can't remember his name and raising in the sun who comes with the check to give to the youngers to say, you don't want to move to that neighborhood. Um, that kind of reasonable violence. This was just simply one arm in the kind of failing of brutality, the brutality that is white supremacy. Um, and so I do think that they're related. I do think that the, the woman who asks me the question, because I think I'm looking distraught, um, but it's her distress that is occupying her, not the possibility of, or even the fact of my own. And so, you know, the, the white psychoanalyst, I think, you know, like, well, what was wrong with her? What was wrong with her question? Why wouldn't you answer her? Um, and even though I relate this note as, a, as the encounter in which I say why, they still won't accept why, <laughs> you know? And it's lovely that they're psychoanalysts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it couldn't be better. <laughs> it um, couldn't. And so I, 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 think, I think it's related because I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, it is like the, exonerative tense. Things were done. Things were done that have some connection to you. Um, but you don't have to stand in the verb of the doing. And so I think that our encounters with that museum, walking underneath those, you know, 805 hanging monoliths, and then going into the graveyard with the other, with, you know, 805 monoliths laid out like coffins of very different experiences. And I go on to talk about, you know, in the graveyard, you know, it felt like desecration to be stopped and spoken to in the midst of whatever it is you're trying to collect in yourself as a Black person as you move through that space because it wasn't a space of mutual um, mourning, but the same kind of mourning, the texture, she might've been mourning, but I don't know the texture of her mourning. Um, and I don't think it was for me to know. Mm. And so I think it is participant in a kind of violence of reasonableness, the kind of reasonableness of the, of the, the violence of the reasonable person. I'm just a kind of reasonable person, and I'm not talking about her now, but it's a kind of violence of reasonableness that says, well, you know, of, you know, that 84-year-old man, because now we have to know that he's 84 years old, white man who shot that 16-year-old black child in the head and then shot him two more times. Well, maybe it's reasonable for him to be afraid that a, a black person appears on his porch. Like that's a violence of reasonableness. In another register, perhaps that's what Claude Landsman called the, uh, what did he call it? The, uh, the, I'm going to say the violence of understanding because it's a kind of understanding and a kind of reasonableness that would seek to excuse violence as opposed to 
some other register of understanding, which is situating it in power structures mm -hmm. and thereby seeing how it happens. It's a kind of understanding that would seek to excuse. And so that's the kind of violence of, of reasonableness, um, which would to say, you know, a kind of both sides and there isn't, right? Yeah. You know? I'm going to play another note that Dion chose. And I think this is, it suggests another relation white people could have in relation to these questions. Perhaps this notion that you just said so well of standing in the verb of doing, of action. Here's Dion Brand reading another note from Ordinary Notes. Note 43. We were called to different things. What if the project that white people took up was to locate each of the white people who appear in the crowds of those lynchings, those who posed for photographs, and those others who appear in the background? What if their project was to identify them and their families and to link their present circumstances to the before of those photographs and the after? That is, what if the work was to draw a line or to map new or continued wealth, accumulation of property and status, access to education and health to those mass murders, a legacy of lynching participants database that would join the past and the present in the same ways that the legacies of British Slave Ownership Project laid bare the slave owners, their strategies of accumulation of wealth and power, evasion and disavowal that have continued into the present. The demand is uneven. We are called to different things. What if white visitors to a memorial to the victims of lynching were met with the enlarged photographs of faces of those white people who were participant in and witness to that terror then and now? What if they had to face themselves? Might that not be a different endeavor? Might that not hit a different note? So thinking about white people going to a slavery memorial and being confronted not with the spectacle of black death, but with white faces, I wanted to take that for a moment into the realm of visual art. You gave the keynote speech at the Black Liberation Center at an event called Art of Collective Care and Responsibility, Handling Images of Black Suffering and Death, where you talk about Torquasi Dyson and how her abstract art is a rubric, not a destination. And you quote her saying, I decided to make paintings and drawings that reconfigured that history of murders and tortures in a way that was diametrically opposed to images in photography. And I did this so that I would unkeep that history. And you talk about Jennifer Packer's paintings of flowers and talk about her flowers are not unlike the flowers left at places where people have died. 
and you show a painting of flowers she made after the death of Sandra Bland. And then you say, the painting is neither a replacement or substitute for the body of the person who has died. It is not synecdoche. Packer herself says, when you go to a funeral, the flowers aren't a stand-in for the body. They're a stand-in in a way for desire and for consideration. They're a beautification, but we wouldn't call them unnecessary attributes at a funeral. You wouldn't call the lilies on a casket decadent, right? You'd just say, this can't even match what I've lost. I wanted to think about these gestures of Dyson and Packer in relation to the controversial painting engaging with the death of Emmett Till, Open Casket by Dana Schutz, which is also an abstraction and which you spend some time with in Ordinary Notes. Could you speak a little into the crucial differences you see in these gestures of of abstraction, how Dyson and Packer are making a different gesture than, than Open Casket is making? But again, your questions make me want to go back to the very beginning of your question, <laughs> um, <laughs> or the beginning of the the kind of offer to speak into. And you know, you were talking about you know again hearing Dion read note um, forty three, and I was thinking, um, you know, about you know might that not be a different endeavor? Might that not hit a different note? And thinking about the kinds of work that white people might call on each other to do, to repair, to to attend to how wealth is accumulated, right? All those black people driven out, everything lost, all those black people fleeing by night to save their lives and the lives of the people they love and having to leave everything behind, land, implements, all possession, everything that they, nothing could go with them that they couldn't carry. And I was thinking about what would come of making a kind of database about that kind of accumulation of the black people who had to leave, flee Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Rosewood, Florida, and on and on, including the black people who are having being forced out of places now because of a different kind of violence called gentrification or financialization um, that have laid waste um, to black communities who have been preyed upon by, you know, all kinds of um, predatory financial instruments. So thinking about how all those things are linked. And then to go to the second part of your beautiful question about the keynote I gave for the Um, Visual Art and Collective Care, which was a conference organized by LaTanya Autry, I think two years ago, in time, as you know, given the pandemic has completely stretched and collapsed and everything else. Um, And LaTanya Autry, you know, has done so much work to show us and tell us how museums are not neutral, how they aren't just presenting knowledge, but constructing knowledge in the ways in which we approach work and communities, et cetera. And so thinking about, and you know, I love what Jennifer Packer says about those bouquets. Well, of course they don't replace the body. You wouldn't call lilies on a casket decadent, would you? 
but how it's a marker of all that we have lost. And also what that person has lost, what that person has been unable to do. And so I think there's a kind of world of difference between what Dana Schutz was doing in Open Casket and what Terkwasi Dyson is doing with the painting like she, he, and I think it's she, he, and he, she, those paintings which, which speak to the lives of those Black people who were lynched using the sort of language of architecture and the language of landscape. And, and Jennifer Packer's sort of beautiful bouquets that don't replace the body. And as she also says something like, what is the experience of grieving for people who you didn't actually know? But that the, the bouquets are a, a sort of indication, a kind of holder of grief and more than grief. And so those kind of abstractions, which I think are a kind of abstraction that attends to Black life without reproducing a certain kind of violence, but attends to the life that exceeds violence for Dyson and Unkeeping and those paintings, and also for those bouquet paintings that, those still lifes, right? So like a, a kind of Black, a rendering of Black still life in which the, the still is like, the continuation of a life as opposed to the cessation of a life. Mm -hmm. I love contronyms. You know, I did an interview with um, Siddhartha Mitter about the Dana Schutz painting right around the time that it happened. And I think that the, the Schutz abstraction doesn't work because she makes abstract the very thing which Mamie Till Bradley wanted to make clear. And that is what look at what they have done to my son. And I'm not sure to what end Schutz's abstraction works toward something like an understanding of the violence of white supremacy. I'm not sure who needed that particular reproduction in a way that really deviated from the kind of work or the kind of subjects that Schutz would normally paint, right? If you think about you know, some of the other paintings in that show, well, that was in the Whitney, but in the show in which her own show in which this appeared. You know, I think there's a, the, the kind of painting of, of Solange, Beyonce and Jay-Z in the elevator, right? And the, the moment of that, of, their, of the fight in the elevator. And so I think it's abstraction in, to different ends, a kind of abstraction that says, look, not all abstraction is violence. We might think about how abstraction allows us a space from which to know and imagine something else about Black life that is not rendered in the kind of, say, clear tones of violence versus the kind of abstraction that Dana Schutz has made that reproduces a kind of spectacular refusal in a way of the work that Till Bradley had to do to make those photographs public. Well, like you, to return to the beginning of my question, you also say about this proposed project of white people identifying and naming and creating a database of the faces in these lynching postcards, that the reason why people put forth to not do this is that these identities are, quote unquote, lost to history. But that abstraction, lost to history, is sort of like this vague placeholder to prevent people from looking rather than an actual historical truth. 
Yeah, I think so. And I'm actually really indebted to Kimberly Juanita Brown for think, begin, for really sitting with and thinking about this because I heard her say in a talk once about those, like she's somebody who writes about death in a way that's really powerful. And I remember her saying in a talk that she gave at Tufts University once about, you know, how many of those white people in those photographs are still alive. And so I've sat with that over the years and said, yeah, you know, people know them as their aunts, uncles, mothers, grandmothers, cousins, nieces, nephews, et cetera. People have a relation. Those people's faces are really clear. And so that people haven't identified them or at least identified them, maybe they do identify them to each other. Like the people who would reproduce that violence proudly, I'm sure claim that violence, but they don't speak it into the world in such a way that is an attempt to repair that violence and to repair how that violence looks in the present. I don't know if this relates to this question of abstraction and visual art, but I, it makes me think also of you writing about this man at the Legacy Museum who spends his days in the museum watching museum goers watch video testimonials of the formerly incarcerated, including himself. And it, he does this because he thought that people didn't care so he would watch them watch him as a form of therapy, witnessing them caring. And you say about this, to look into other people's faces for your therapy is a dangerous proposition. And I think of that along with your meditation on Amazing Grace, where the composer of the song who changes his position on slavery with his conversion to Christianity, actually continues to work in the slave trade long after his conversion. And the redemption he sings about in the song is not that of slaves, but of himself. Somehow both of these things feel related to this question of who is being centered and by whom, which feels like it's in play when looking at Schutz, Dyson, and Packer or even when you're talking about who is the viewer of the photograph of the girl with the word chip on her forehead, it's a quality of ordinary notes. The way you've made this into these, these modular sections, I feel like welcomes everyone and provides different experiences for everyone somehow. But I didn't know if these, if these moments and I'm not saying this well, but I don't know if these moments connect for you around Amazing Grace and this man that you speak to in the museum who seems trapped in a loop, a psychological loop, as he watch him, watches himself on loop. Does that bring up any thoughts um, for you? It does. I don't know that I would have put them together like that, but that you have put them together makes perfect sense to me, right? And so part of what I would say is that that... I'll call him a young man, that that young man had not been out of prison for very long. And he was sentenced to life in prison at the age of 14 years old. And Brian Stevenson, as part of, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a lawyer and part of the EJI mission is also to represent anyone in Alabama who has either a, a death penalty case or a, and then young people who have been sentenced to life in prison 
Um, right. So he represented this young man. And so it was because of that representation that he was released from prison, I think after like 15 or 20, 17 years or something like that. Maybe I think what connects these notes is the question of reparation and the question of repair, both. Right. So if so, you know, John Newton keeps on working on that slave ship or on those slave ships, even his, after his conversion, um, says something to me about a kind of refusal of repair, that repair didn't enter into the question, right? And I guess I wanna tie that to something like reparations being paid to those who claimed ownership over people as opposed to those who were enslaved. Like nobody has paid reparations to the formerly enslaved, only to those people who claimed ownership over other people. So I think there's some connection there and that the kind of question of regard, repair, reparation are what those notes might kind of constellate around. I do wish I had said to him, whether it would have been welcome or not, that to look into other people's faces for your therapy is a dangerous proposition because he is engaging people who he might have to argue with to declare his being rightfully free. And that just seemed terrible to me. He was lucky to engage me that I did not feel that way. But many people come through that museum and he related some tense encounter he'd had with an older white man. And I thought that would have been the end of those encounters for me. Um, but he, he kept doing it. And I, I doubt that he does it now, or I don't know if he does it now, that was 2018. Um, but I think he was just like in this position of both trying to embrace what it meant to have escaped that hold and to, 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 to really fully live in the something like freedom. And that there's something about encounter. I'd say the other thing that sort of these notes constellate around is something like encounter, like what's given, what's, what's taken, what's negotiated, what is refused. And so those would be the set of terms that I would think, even if I didn't put them together in that way before your question and your invitation, I think those might be the terms around which I would think them together. You, you did an event with, with Saidiya Hartman and others, including Kinesia Lubrin, called Poetry is Not a Luxury, The Poetics of Abolition, where Saidiya said something that sort of encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about, but with different language, comparing and contrasting anti-racism and abolition, where the former anti-racism is always aiming to give a brutal account of our now to describe and document its violence. All of it as a mode toward changing and transforming the given. But that an abolitionist imaginary is trying to create the world of relations we want in the world now. It is the act of destroying completely the world, the end of the world. And she says there's a pressure on an abolitionist poetics 
to imagine how we want to be living now in the now, that it is not involved in an eternal mode of waiting. And it feels like what you're suggesting as a project for white people in that note that Dion read, this reckoning with the actions of kin, this project of making visible what remains hidden and unspoken, of naming people and accounting for what they've accumulated through what they've done is a very different project than you and your mother's project. The, perhaps the sovereignty of the interior, or beauty as a method, though perhaps both are part of an abolitionist poetics together, I wonder. Maybe when Dyson says she's trying to unkeep history, that you're suggesting that white people instead should be unearthing it. Um, I don't know if this provokes any thoughts. We have a question from Kinesia for you, but if you have any thoughts about that before I play it, I'd love to hear them. I have lots of thoughts about it. Actually, again, I'm always impressed by like the number of things you find and listen to. Like, oh yeah, I did do that. <laughs> um, well, I'd say that I, I, I think, of course, that there's not just one project. So I wouldn't say, you know, the project of, you know, beauty as a method versus the project of what you called kind of, you know, white people sort of unearthing and, you know, doing that kind of <laughs> deep material analysis of the ground that they work from or grow from or stand in or et cetera. You know, we need any number of projects to, to sort of bring into being the kinds of relations that would allow all of us to live, to actually really live, um, as opposed to, I don't know, just survive or not survive. And I think as you were talking, I, I was thinking about my, when I first encountered kind of contemporary politics um, of abolition was in 2008 when I was at Tufts and I was running the Black Cultural Studies Seminar and a colleague and I invited Ruth Wilson Gilmore to give a talk. And it was on abolition after Hurricane Katrina. And it began by her talking about, of course, those people who were imprisoned who were abandoned right? There was no evacuation of the prisons. It was my first real encounter. I had read some of her writing about abolition, but it was the first, it was like a real deep encounter with, well, what would this actually mean? And so, you know, I do think the work of abolition and the work of anti-racism are two kind of different projects, the kind of naming, because I also feel like some people who position themselves to do anti-racist work position themselves as, you know, allies in that work, as opposed to really doing the work because it also benefits them to see the end of, you know, anti-Blackness and white supremacy, et cetera. So I think, you know, anti-racist work maybe also sometimes, you know, allows for, yeah, a kind of taxonomy of the present that doesn't necessarily go into the work of imagining, well, what kinds of relations do we really want? And I think that abolitionist work, hopefully at its best, is really invested in thinking about right, how do we, as we work toward this thing, 
also make livable worlds along the way as we work toward, you know, a kind of reconfiguration of how we might live together, that we're also making those kind of livable worlds along the way. Some of them fail, some of them don't. Some of them are seeded and sprout other things. So, yeah, that's what your question kind of invites me to, to think on. How a kind of anti-racist work might also actually be a kind of work of reform Abolition work is a work of revolution and liberation, not reform. And so that is where they, for me, split. Well, let's invite Kinesia into the conversation to pose a question to you. Hey, Christina, it's Kinesia. So I decided I would come on here and do something a little different than what David asked me to do. Or maybe... It's not so different at all for me to come here and simply want to say how much your presence and your work enrich our lives. And anyone should be so lucky to have your attention trained on any moment of how we live, never mind to have the power of your, your brilliance and grace and understanding felt across the entirety of what, what we call Black life. So. As much as I only want to say how lucky we are and to thank you, I wonder if you might speak a little about the practice of yours, uh, which I find so remarkable, uh, is that you focus on a single word and then move toward great world-shifting insight with that movement and the the great care that such accumulation requires, to my mind, is a rare thing. So it is a pleasure to celebrate you and Ordinary Notes. Um, I mean, we celebrate the other two also, <laughs> but this moment is for the extraordinary Ordinary Notes, and I am happy to say thank you. Thank you so much, Kinesia. David, you brought Kinesia on here to try to make me cry or something. Um, <laughs> but, but Kinesia, you know that the, the feeling is mutual um, and the gift of language and thought that you usher us into. And so I, I love that question, um, how to answer it, though. At a, a, a salon that um, Tina Camp organized for In the Wake at Barnard in 2016, Hazel Carby spoke and she said that I was a forensic etymologist. Um, and I, I loved that while I aspire to be a forensic etymologist, I will say that I really do love words and I think it's a kind of particular obsession. The other thing you could say is like, I just get obsessed about certain things and I just wanna keep staying with it and worrying it and worrying it and worrying it. And really, I think the title in the wake, for example, really came after seeing that photograph. I might have wanted to call it in the wake already, but something crystallized for me after seeing the photograph of that little girl and how those ships were still everywhere present in our lives. And then I think note, um, note is me kind of working something through from in the wake about that moment that you referred to earlier, David. I think we began with it about high man 
the high and the ho uh, in morning and evening that stops a particular violence only to continue another form of violence, right? And so I, I've been kind of obsessed with that, the kind of note that makes possible escape, even if escape is only in the mind, um, but that makes possible a kind of maybe lateral care. And then of course I had to think, okay, well, what are the, what are all the other definitions of note and how might they inform the ways in which I'm thinking about organizing this book and writing this book. And of course, each chapter doesn't have a definition of note, but many of them do. And so of course, you know, um, thoughts written down um, to assist memory, um, their musical notes. I just love the idea of being able to keep all of the definitions at play at any given moment and to think through what doing what and what doing that allows us to think through how it allows us to get something of a kind of wholesome idea of um, of a particular set of questions or propositions or ideas and again it's down to my like obsessive quality or i can return to the same thing again and again and again and again um, because I'm trying to see it from all of these different angles and trying to understand something about it. And I did that with Wake and I did that with Note. And probably I tried to do it with Monstrous Intimacies as well. Um, but I just think that kind of staying with something can open up a different kind of aperture by which we don't collapse everything into it, but, but, but by which we can make an argument or see the world well if you'll indulge me i'm gonna spend a moment doing that with the word ordinary and then ask you about it there's an epigraph to section three an epigraph by dion brand a section called can i live that goes to live in the black diaspora is i think to live as a fiction a creation of empires and also self-creation it is to be a being living inside and outside of herself. It is to apprehend the sign one makes, yet to be unable to escape it except in radiant moments of ordinariness made like art. And when I talked to Dion for the show, she said, I'm faced every day with the spectacularity of black life from all media. And so therefore, I'm faced every day with the question of breaking down that spectacularity or rejecting that spectacularity for what I know, which are the complex, deep arrangements of the everyday. And perhaps in a kindred spirit, Claire Schwartz said when we talked, um, talking about Mariam Kaba's idea that for the spectacle to be the threshold of the unfair or what we deem unacceptable means that the ordinary is acceptable. But in fact, where we need to attend is actually the very fabric, the very root of our lives as we know it. It's not actually the spectacular thing. 
And then she talks about her own poetry. How do you make the ordinary as terrifying as it is? And lastly, of the many possible examples I could choose from, you gave a speech in Berlin called Black Still Life, where you talk about how at a meeting of the Los Angeles Police Commission, Sheila Hines Brim threw the ashes of her niece, Waikisha Wilson, a niece who died in police custody in 2016. She threw the ashes of her niece at Charlie Beck, the head of the LAPD. And as she threw them, she said, that's Waikisha. She's going to stay with you. And after she was arrested, she said, I used her ashes so they could be with him, so he could feel her because he murdered her. And then you switched to talking about how, how in In the Wake, you wrote about an ordinary note of care. And that ordinary note of care, the calls of high man to the 46 men in the chain gang and beloved, And then you return again to Waikisha Wilson, whose cries for help went unheard and unattended to. And you say, quote, I am not trying to romanticize or to aestheticize Heinz Brim's act as she sounds an ordinary note, but I want to attend here to her political act, to her note of care and to her political demand. So in light of all of this, and and Kinesia noting that you have this knack for building worlds from a word. Talk to us about ordinary for you, um, yeah. what it means for you, and what sounding an ordinary note means too, because it seems like that also has a shifting meaning yeah. in, with different contexts too. Right. Right, because that's also note one, what, what the texture of those might notes might be, that they might, um, you know, reconstitute anti-blackness. They might cut through anti-blackness. They might bypass it altogether. They might attempt to bypass it altogether. Um, and so I, I wanted to attend to the multiple meanings that I've said of the word note, but also the word ordinary and what ordinary might mean in a black life at this moment in the world. And so the ordinary, as it appears in the book, is, you know, literary, visual, it's the violence that we live, survive and don't survive, it's arbitrary, it's the beautiful, all of these things are the kind of ordinary notes or the fabric of Black life. I will return to that moment with Sheila Hines Brim and Lakeisha Wilson in another thing that I'm working on, but I thought that was a, such a profound act. It was a profound act to intervene in the kinds of ordinary disregard and violence that decimates our communities and our lives. And I thought that it was this kind of, yeah, I thought it was a political gesture. I thought it was a political demand. I thought it was taking a kind of, I don't know, ordinary and also extraordinary step to say, you are going to attend to me. You know, I love those sentences from A Map to the Door of No Return about ordinariness made like art. 
which is that there's a quality to the ordinary that is, well, that's the quality of what we live every day. And we can at least try at moments to choose what we do with it. Even in the midst of all kinds of pressures and, you know, <laughs> the climate is anti-Black. <laughs> so I love the texture of that. You know, I've listened several times as well to the interview with, with Claire and talking about um, civil service and uh, with Claire Schwartz talking about her book, Civil Service. And I think she's right in quoting Kaba and thinking about attending not to the spectacular. And I think certainly we learned this from Saidiya Hartman's Deans of Subjection where she refused to repeat the spectacular. Like she's going to attend to these quotidian violences that structure our lives um, and that get repeated. And so it's not the spectacle. So that, you know, so while the memorial attends the 4,400 spectacle lynchings, there are other kinds, there are other lynchings that are happening that aren't drawing the crowds of those lynchings, the kind of everyday brutalities and murders and et cetera, but also the everyday ways in which we make a kind of living together and apart that allows us to move to the next day and allows us to do the work of imagining something different. And I think, you know, the work of imagination can be put to brutality and it can be put to brutality's opposite. But it is part of the kind of ordinary texture of, of the ordinary extraordinary matter of Black life. I realized as I was writing the book that I was, I thought I'm paying a lot of attention to note. And it's much later on that I define ordinary. But all along, I'm trying to think about the kind of ordinary textures of Black life. Um, and I really am not trying to attend to the spectacular, but trying to attend to like the kind of layered daily and how we experience it, how we live it, how we reflect on it, how we shape something else, how we make notes that carry each other into some other space. Um, yeah. As one moves to the tail end of the book, it feels like it becomes more and more a celebration of beauty, of books that meant a great deal to you, of sharing the answers from others that you asked on Twitter of what books meant the most to them, um, of sharing an incredibly beautiful question you were asked at one of your talks, sharing photos you've taken. And it would be a failure on my part not to mention that the book itself, what FSG did with this book how seriously they took the project of making the book into a thing of beauty is remarkable. It and it also has this incredible heft due to, I think, the quality of the materials that made it. It's gorgeous, like a museum exhibition book, as well as for all of its thought and care uh, in the words. Um, but I wanted to mention one of the things that happens in the latter part of the book that really resonated with me. And it's a critique, but it's, it's also delivered not as a blow. There's a generosity to how it's delivered. And I think that makes it sort of paradoxically more cutting in the end. Um, but it feels right that at the end, it's a softly delivered critique, even as much as I feel like it comes from the pain due to all the ways in your own life 
as a student in universities and as a teacher, you've met obstacles with only half concealed or not concealed racist subtext to them, which you do talk about in the book. But at one point you're talking about reading Kazuo Ishiguro and admiring it, many aspects of it, and yet also noticing that his finely observed concerns seem to elude him when it comes to race. And after pointing out how black people are described and racialized versus others in his books, you say, Ishiguro's vast imagination utterly falters when it encounters blackness, and he is not alone. And to be fair, you're not singling out him in this book in particular. But 30 pages later, you say that you suspect that many writers who are not black, who you've taught or otherwise found useful and interesting and moving, have themselves not read the work of black writers. And leaping forward another 40 pages in your book, I'm going to read note 218 called At This Late Stage, where you say, I am watching a famous writer and a famous theorist in conversation. They're speaking about the writer's new book. They are speaking about white people and whiteness. The theorist who has written books that upended and changed fields, loses words on whiteness and in relation to blackness. They transport wonder to the conversation, but not depth. I think about the theorist's early and influential work and how different that work would have been had they, at the very least, considered the work of the Combahee River Collective, Tony K. Bambara, Barbara Christian, Hortense Spillers, and Oyoronke Oyoumi. At this late stage, to still wonder, to still lose words. In the aura of this, I feel grateful for this, this way of coming into this place of beauty in the end with this critique also embedded in it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a question for you that speaks into the Black Archive from Ronaldo Walcott. Hi, Christina. This is Ronaldo. I know that you had an association with Kitchen Table Press, and I'm wondering if you might say something about how that association has impacted your own craft as a writer. Of course, you got to um, witness the work of some of the most important black feminist um, writers of an era passed through that press um, when, when you were there. Thank you for that question. Yeah, I was like 23 years old. It was my after my first semester in graduate school. But I had met Barbara Smith when I was 19, and I went with her and another young woman whose name I can't remember now um, to the ABA in Washington, DC. And it was at that, that meeting actually where I met Joseph Beam. And so then I continued corresponding with Barbara Smith, who of course has done, you know, those books transformed my life. Um, 
you know, meeting her when she came to give a talk at University of Pennsylvania when I was in my first year as an undergraduate, completely transformed who I thought I could be in the world. And so I think to add to the, the way that you began the question, David, and first let me say thank you, Ronaldo. It's so good to hear your voice asking me a question. Um, as if I think about the ways you began, like in the aftermath of you know, homegirls, um, but some of us are brave, um, loving in the war years, all the work that Kitchen Table Press edited and put out into the world that continues to, to impact really everything about how I understood myself as a feminist, to still, to still ask those questions. And I think it comes back to the kind of question about, given all the work the Kitchen Table Press has done, given all the work that Barbara Smith has done, given all the work that Oye Rumi, um, Hortense Spiller, Saidiya Hartman, and I'm thinking sort of across generations, how can it not have shifted the ways that people think and talk about race? And it's not just the sort of talking about race. So, you know, when I talk about Ishiguro, it's not that he doesn't have some complex rendering of, you know, people who are quote unquote raced. It's really when it comes to blackness that the complexity falls apart. Right, and suddenly you get the black-skinned woman and the black-skinned man. I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, who is black-skinned? Right? I mean, you know, it's a complete failure of imagination. When all of these writers and thinkers and philosophers of black life have given us such detailed, careful understandings that shift across time, but that we can certainly build on and think with and remain deeply important to our contemporary living, that we are left with something like wonder instead of real encounter and real engagement becomes, well, at the very least, deeply troubling. But the world of writing and thinking that kitchen table press opened me up to, I'll always be grateful for. Because it really did go into shaping who I was. It gave me permission to, to speak myself as queer. It gave me permission to speak myself as feminist. It gave me permission to inhabit a kind of way of approaching and understanding the world that I took into graduate school and was um, people tried to discipline me out of, <laughs> but thankfully they weren't successful. Um, so yeah, to be in that light and in that world was a tremendous honor. Well, before we end, I want to at least briefly return to your mother. And given that we've talked this whole time about you know, questions of of what to show, how to show it, when to show it, Talk to us about your mother asking you not to write about her. Um, I feel like I feel confident somehow that you've what you've done has honored her and is loving. And somehow, I mean, I don't know your mom, yeah, but that she would that she would love it. I don't know why. I can I can say that I I can't say that with any authority. 
but you do include in here that she's asked you not to write about her yeah. and yet has made you into a writer. Yeah. And I would love to hear you speak into that paradox. I had a book launch in Toronto on um, April 4th, which is when the book came out in, in Canada. Oh, I want to go back to one other thing that you said. And I want to say that it's really the my editor at Kanaf, who Lynn Henry, who's also the editor-in-chief, um, and Eric Chinsky at FSG, between them, they really did do the work of making it, as you said, a beautiful book, a beautiful object. And Lynn certainly was really committed to saying, Christina, we're going to make this a beautiful object. So I think they were so successful. Like, I couldn't be happier. My brother came to the launch and he told me that, you know, of how my brother's five years older than me. You know, um, I have two living siblings and my brother Christopher came to the launch and he told me how proud our mother would be. I think she would, even though she said, don't write about me, would approve the ways that I've written about her. And I do think it was a question of, like she couldn't understand why I loved those photographs. Even though my mother used to tell me stories about her growing up, which some of which I share little bits of, that were like the most amazing stories. Like I would ask for them again and again and again. Um, I think she would approve. I was going to make a bad joke, but I'm going to make this bad joke, but you can't put it in. <laughs> she wouldn't approve of my naked picture. <laughs> but you can't include that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You'd be like, right. Christina, I wish you I, have to put that I in wish there. I wish I could. <laughs> I want to put it in there, but I won't. <laughs> Actually, I don't care if you say that. I think it's funny. <laughs> we can have a little laughter at the end. No, she'd be like, did you have to put that in there, right. Christina? <laughs> In fact, did you have to have it taken? <laughs> anyway, um, but I think she would approve of the ways that um, that I've written about her and the kind of, you know, like things that I'll never forget, like the possum leg. Yeah, I think she would approve. Just to satisfy my, my, my curiosity a little bit, in preparing for today, I came across many other book projects that you mentioned. In- <laughs> in passing as you give talks or speeches. And one of them is a book called Black Still Life. Another, the Dictionary of Untranslatable Blackness. And you mentioned to me directly after I was so taken by your your speech at the Venice Biennale, um, What Could a Vessel Be?, that that too was being expanded into a book. And I just wondered if you could speak to any of those or, or, or perhaps an unknown work that I don't know of that you're, you're engaging with or that we can anticipate from you. So the Dictionary of Untranslatable Blackness is not going to become a standalone book, not in that iteration anyway, but there is a chapter, part six, in Ordinary Note, preliminary entries toward the Dictionary of Untranslatable Blackness. And that section is a kind of chorus in which scholars, writers, poets, architects, thinkers, um, colleagues um, responded to my invitation to choose a word and define it from the point of Black life. The sort of thinking from within Black life, tell me what the word time means or elegance or liquidity or um, life. And so it's a kind of choral 
response to an invitation. Um, and so when you asked about one of the books, Dictionary, in Ordinary Notes, that's what it became. Black Still Life will be a book and that will come out with Duke at some point, 2025, maybe. How I'm thinking about this kind of changing, but part of it I know will be to take up soil and it will be partially thinking about the soil collection project of the Equal Justice Initiative, which I find utterly compelling. And so I wanna uh, think about the, the kind of black still life of soil. I also wanna think about dust. So that's where Sheila Hines-Brim will come back and thinking about dust and soil and air and various other things. And then What Could a Vessel Be is a book that will come out with Kanaf and FSG also in 2025, where I will continue thinking both with Le Guin's carrier bag theory of fiction and also with all of these propositions on a vessel that are both related to visual artists, but also sort of growing from not always related to visual artists. I just found that when I wrote that piece that's in the catalog, Milk of Dreams, and then I gave an expanded version of it at the Biennale in June, 2022, I just kept wanting to write it. And it will be a very short book, you know, like 80 pages or so. But I just, the, the kind of proposition of the vessel, the importance that the vessel has had in Black life, uh, diasporically, yeah, I, I am going to keep working on those things. I think that's enough. Well, I, I am also thinking, putting together um, and writing some additions to something that I am tentatively calling to have been to the end of the world, 25 essays on art. Because I've written all of these pieces about visual artists and for a catalog, Lydia Hartman said to me, you know, I didn't quite realize that you'd written all this work on artists and it would be nice to have it in one place, but also to continue and think about some other artists who, you know, like I'd love to write something about Lynette Yaldenboake. I think I got her name right. Um, I'd love to write something else about Jennifer Packer's work. Um, there are other artists who, Steve McQueen, there are other artists who I really want to, to think about, and this would be an occasion for me to, to write about them as well. I'm going to say one last thing is like, when I wrote Monstrous Intimacies, which was partially my dissertation, but then three chapters that weren't my dissertation, I wasn't sure that I would ever write another book. So it's really such a pleasure to imagine multiple projects. Well, it's a pleasure for us on the other side to imagine them. That's very kind. Us. <laughs> Let's go out with the brief but very deep note, note 234. I don't know what 234 is, so I'll be surprised. Note 234. Care is complicated, gendered, misused. It is often mobilized to enact violence not assuage it, yet I cannot surrender it. I want acts and accounts of care as shared and distributed risk, as mass refusals of the unbearable life, as total rejection of the dead future. Thank you, Christina Sharp. Thank you, David Naiman. It's been a real pleasure. It really has. I've been looking forward to this for so long. It's really a, an honor to be talking with you, one of the 
one of two podcasts that I deeply admire. <laughs> Thank you so much for your deep attention and rigorous care. I've been talking today to Christina Sharp, the author of Ordinary Notes. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. Christina contributes quite a few things to the bonus audio archive. Readings from my favorite of Dion Brand's books, The Blue Clerk. Readings of the poetry of Victoria Duque-Bully. And readings from Kinesia Lubrin's forthcoming 2024 book, Code Noir. These join readings from everyone from Dion Brand to Nikki Finney to Sharif Shanahan to copies of the Arab-American journal Mizna, their black takeover issue, to the Tin House early readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. In addition, every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with every conversation. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.